everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. I hope today's conversation inspires you and builds your faith for the moment you are in right now. Know that God's love for you truly changes everything. Enjoy the message. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great joy to be with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Joel is helping his son graduate from University in Michigan, so I am pleased to be here in his behalf. Been talking about overwhelmed, not defeated, but overwhelmed. And it's a very heavy and unwelcome word, this word overwhelmed. It conjures up dark memories of the past or the crush of today's present realities, like the crash of the dishes two weeks ago this morning. I've often hoped something like that would happen to me. I wouldn't have to wash them. But, in, but that happened nicely. And then last Sunday again, the one thing, that fancy motorbike up here, I have no idea what to do with it if I owned it. But you can't ride it if it has a flat tire. And so we had wonderful considerations of that teaching. And overwhelmed is defined in part as to devastate, to crush, to grind down, to swamp, or to snow under. I want to read a few verses to you that undoubtedly will be on the screen, which is Paul's testimony from 2 Corinthians 11, where he was overwhelmed on steroids, if you wish. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the city, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but they are not. I've worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. It exhausts me just to consider what he has been through in this process of being overwhelmed. And the changing circumstances of life, ladies and gentlemen, while they may not be nearly as severe as Paul's experience, they can knock the wind right out of us. I was invited one time by a young couple that attended our church that was pastoring in Nova Scotia to meet them at the funeral home on a Sunday afternoon. Their very young child had died suddenly and unexpectedly. They wanted me to accompany them the first time they went to view her remains. And so I went with them as requested. And this innocent looking little child was there in a white gown, as I remember, laying inside the casket. And we had to gently restrain her mother who was quite determined she wanted to pick that little child up out of the casket and give her a hug or give her a kiss. She was simply overwhelmed by the circumstances they faced. I listened to our former Prime Minister, John Cretchen, on CTV a week or so back when he said, and I quote him, Canada is moving into a dark alley. The ancient prophet Jeremiah in the 45th chapter of his book said, I am overwhelmed with trouble. Haven't I had enough pain already? And it's not only the tragedies of life, but the shifting and unrelenting realities of daily living that can pull us down off of the tiptoes of our joy and leave us feeling overwhelmed. The so-called Cold War 
ran from 1947 to 1991, two years after World War II it began and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 brought about its end. So for over four decades, we had lived in what was called the Cold War and we had become extremely familiar with those decades and they were, suddenly they were upended and our former enemies were now our friends or at least not our enemies anymore. And in the process of all that, some students at the U.S. Army War College studying all those changes back there in the early 90s came up with a new word. The word was VUCA. They used that word to describe their times and it also fits our times. VUCA stood for, in their opinion and mine, for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And we live, ladies and gentlemen, you know this without me telling you, we live in a VUCA world. A world that's volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous and it leaves the culture leaning pretty heavily toward difficult days. There is a little village called Greece Fjord on Ellesmere Island in none of it. If you take its original language name and translate it back into English, it means the place that never thaws. This is the northernmost civilian community in our country. The average yearly temperature is minus 16, average. The four coldest months have an average of minus 45. It's 1170 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle and 129 people eke out an existence in this little community, a subsistence really, and there are no roads that connect it to the rest of the country. There's a small airfield there that is considered among the most dangerous short airstrips anywhere in Canada. The supplies they have run out by the time summer rolls around, the place is pretty destitute and it's a tough place and I was overwhelmed just watching about it. And then there is this dude named Frank Holland who lives up there. Frank Holland came up and he grew up in Amherst, Nova Scotia, so I threw him into this sermon because he's basically our neighbor. But he grew up in Amherst, Nova Scotia and for his whole life wanted to move to Canada's far north. And so he moved to this little village of Greece Fjord and he manages the co-op store there. By the time summer rolls around, the shelves in the co-op store are extremely bare. You can't go anywhere to buy anything except the co-op, which we're going to have a look at it here. Except the co-op, there it is. That's, if you want to go shopping, you're limited to that. If they don't have it there, can you go to the Walmart? Well, only if you charter a plane five for four hours and find some way to get back, you maybe could do that. This is life in Greece Fjord. But once a year, there is a sea lift that comes. Ships, two ships, one of two come there, either the Sedna or the Tega, they're out of Montreal, and they show up once a year with tons of groceries, ammo for the hunters, even in one case, a new septic tank, wouldn't that be welcome if you needed it, clothing, items ordered a year ago. You want to talk about Amazon doesn't go there. So you're not going to get your Alexa saying there's an Amazon parcel on your front step. Not much chance of that. They deliver miscellaneous food items, building supplies, new snowmobiles, parts for old snowmobiles, and all kinds of other items that come from this floating Santa Claus. 
And when the sea lift arrives, people are overjoyed. You ought to look it up sometime on the APN network and have a look at it. It's quite a fascinating thing. A year's supplies and a single delivery. If you don't get it there, you don't get it. They had to fly in sugar a few years ago because there was none available and they'd run out and it cost $24 a kilo. So that makes the sugar you're buying now seem cheap. And despair had turned to joy, to an amazing reality because hope had become real in this faraway place. A hundred years ago, 1921, she was built and launched in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. She was designed to fish codfish on the, on the shoal, on the southeast shoal of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. But she was fast and racing was her true destiny. She's the most iconic Canadian vessel perhaps ever built, it could be argued. Her lightness is on the Canadian dime. She is the Blue Nose. She was captained by Angus Walters. She won the international fisherman's race five times and she never was beaten, not once. She was launched in the dark days of the Spanish flu epidemic. It brought on quarantines and mass. It took lives and jobs and economic stability and it upended the routines of life. She was celebrated for her speed and for winning races, but as one historian put it, Canadians were searching for hope. And here we are exactly a century later, 2021, in the dark shadow of another pandemic. Like the one of a hundred years ago, it brought on quarantines and masks and took lives and jobs and economic stability and upended the routines of life. And many Canadians, including most of us in this room this morning, are looking for hope. So take hope, ladies and gentlemen. This word overwhelmed has two faces. If you can imagine the dime that you are sort of imagining to hold in your hand, it has both the heads and the tails. The blue nose is part of it, of course, and the queen is the other. But over, this matter of overwhelmed has two faces, a heads and a tails as it were. And please note this, this is sort of a pivot point in my little conversation with you this morning. The opposite of overwhelmed is not underwhelmed. The opposite of overwhelmed is, well, overwhelmed. Remembrance Day was observed this week. I was down at Victoria Park at the Cenotaph the other day on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month as we remembered the wars that our country has fought and people who've given their lives there. I went there partly because I had deep respect for them and I went there partly because my own family was touched by those events. My father was wounded in the taking of Vimy Ridge on the ninth day of April 1917 and bore the effects of that wounding the entire rest of his life after 13 months in a British hospital. So we have that war we remembered this week. War is a gruesome thing. And there's places in Nazi Germany you'd heard of, I know, that come out of the Second World War especially. The Auschwitz concentration camp. We're going to have a look at that, I think. And the Auschwitz concentration camp is actually in Poland. This is the train station at Birkenau, which is adjacent 
And there's an earlier picture, maybe another one of the front gate. We have that, another picture of the front gate of Auschwitz. And about 1.1 million Jews died there. Not only Jews, Poles and others. And I've been to this place. I walked through the corridors, there it is. You see the phrase over top of the sign, I cannot read the German, but the translation back into English is you were ushered into a place where you would die while you were there. The sign that greets you says, work will set you free. And I've been there, I've walked in the gas chambers and I've walked in the crematorium chambers and I've walked in the housing units and tried to sense some of that, where the materials taken from the prisoners are discarded there, clothes and shoes of all kind, hair that had been cut off. And I stood there, and I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I was overwhelmed by man's inhumanity to man, by the capacity to put unending difficulty and life-threatening and life-extinguishing things in the paths of people, and you cannot go there and not be overwhelmed by the reality of what is represented there. And then along came 1945 and the war was over. And we have some pictures from London, I think, from 1945 when the war was over. Can we pop those up there, please? If you don't like me, just say so, that's okay. I'm gonna be done pretty soon. But you've seen some of these pictures, which we're going to see <laughs> by lunchtime. <laughs> you've seen some of these yourselves when the war was over in London, and people were parading in the streets and shouting and celebrating and hugging each other. There's a classic picture, if we get it, of a sailor who actually is giving a deep dive kiss to a woman he didn't even know. But there was a lot to celebrate about, so kiss whoever was nearby and hope that person looked attractive had remembered to brush your teeth that morning or something, but you were just caught up in the whole thing and the overwhelmed experience from the concentration camp, that terrible heavy sense gave way to the overwhelming experience of victory that was being occurred over here. So we've talked about the heads and the tails side of it a little. You remember that the tail side says to devastate, to crush, to grind down, to swamp, to snow under, and to lose hope. And that's the context in which we most often think, I believe we do, of overwhelmed. But the same word applied in a different sense. This word overwhelmed also means stunning, mind-boggling, mind-boggling, amazing, astounding, exciting, breathtaking, and overcoming. The Gospel of Mark says when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with joy and ran to meet him. Isaiah said, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. There's a great word from Jesus himself in John 16, where he said, here on earth, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I've overcome the world. On Mark 5:42, holding her hand, he, Jesus, said to her, little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up, walked around the house, and they were, the Bible says, overwhelmed and totally amazed. There's the guy kissing the neighbor. <laughs> now, if you're going to go kiss your neighbor, I'd exercise real caution in that. You might start a war, not end one. But this makes the point of how excited they were overwhelmed by the ending 
of the war, overwhelmed by things that God might do. Gujarat is a state in western India on the Arabian Sea. I was there in one of my official capacities some time back, and I had just getting settled into my quarters when there was a knock on the door and a young gal said, Joel is dying, please come. Joel was the adult married son of the district superintendent. He was born with a ventricular septal defect, better known as a hole in the heart. And so I went up to the house where they had gathered together, and when I walked in, Joel was on the bed in obvious distress. And his dad, who was there, looked at me and said, pray that the doctor will be found. That was his specific prayer. Pray that the doctor will be found. A Hindu who lived a few blocks away. They had gone to his home. The doctor was not there. So where could he be? Nobody knew for sure. Nobody was equipped with cell phones quite then. And so I did as I was asked to do. I prayed as fervently as I could that the doctor would be found. And I hadn't finished my prayer by more than two or three seconds. And there was a knock on the door. And they went and opened the door and there stood the Hindu doctor. He said, I'm not sure why I'm here. Can I help someone? And I have no idea how he got there or what brought him to that place. But I have to tell you, as I stood in that moment of God working among us, I was overwhelmed by the presence of the divine. I was lined up one time at an airport, a queue, a long queue in the airport of Medellin, Colombia, getting ready to leave there. And I was in a long queue, needed to get on the flight. Pretty obvious I wasn't going to make it. Seemed like a man came to me, an official individual, tapped me on the shoulder and said, please follow me. So I did. He pulled me out of the line, took me to a, a private, a much smaller processing center, walked me down to the departure gate and directed me where to get on the plane. And I turned to express appreciation to him and he was not there. I stood there with a tear in my eye, overwhelmed by the fact that God was at work. You remember your first baby when your first baby arrived? Remember that feeling you had? the most beautiful kid in the world, without a doubt. And you took pictures, especially your parents, that'd be the grandparents. They had pictures so they could on demand produce an unf unfolding envelope with 50 pictures on it, all of the same kid doing the same thing. And you're supposed to dutifully look at them. I, I get that, I have some of those pictures <laughs> myself. But the truth be told, when you see that little life, when our son Troy was coming home with us for the first time, and my wife, Gloria, was on the right side of the car. There, the passenger seat holding the baby, which the Bible says somewhere that's how that's supposed to be. And I just reached over to see if she was doing okay. Did she need any help from me? And as providence or coincidence would have it, his little hand wrapped around my little finger. I could hardly see the road. I was overwhelmed in that minute. I was at church. I'll finish these stories pretty soon. But I was at church one Sunday morning in Indianapolis when we lived there, Trinity Wesleyan Church, a congregation of 300 or so at the time. And a male quartet in the church was up singing the song, I bowed on my knees and cried holy. And there was a presence in that room that cannot be described, but it's understood if you ever experience it. And nobody said anything to the congregation. 
Nobody gave us any instruction of what we should or shouldn't do, but as if somebody had done so, almost on prompt, but nothing was said or done, the entire congregation just stood all at once. Because you had to do something. The presence of God was so strong in the place and being felt so keenly, we were one and all overwhelmed by the presence of Christ. Now this, hear this, this is not about positive thinking. This is about providential trust. Do we have that slide or have the slides gone away to a bad place? This is not about positive thinking. There you go. If you only take one thought home with you, take that one. This isn't about positive thinking, ladies and gentlemen. It's about providential trust. And the journey, the journey from the tales of being overwhelmed to the heads of becoming overwhelmed, it begins at Gethsemane. They were overwhelmed there as terribly as you could be, but it flows right through his trial and his crucifixion, and it ends up at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning, and overwhelmed had changed to overwhelmed when the angel said to the people who came, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen indeed. And the overwhelming thing, you see, because they had in fact been overwhelmed by the Roman soldiers on Friday. And they were overwhelmed by the risen Savior on Sunday. It just changed the whole thing because this is not about positive thinking. This is about providential trust. So if you go from the tales of being overwhelmed to the heads of overwhelmed, it leads to the life of an overcomer. Who would not want to be an overcomer? And the journey from overwhelmed to overcomer swings on a number of things and crucial to them is a deeply felt personal commitment to faith in Jesus Christ. It starts there. If you leapfrog that and try to go the other solutions, you miss the entire point. So it starts with salvation by faith and it leads then on from there to a couple of things I shall mention to you quickly, one of which is, what's your field of vision? What's your field of vision? When I pastored in Black Harbor way back when we first started out a long time ago, there were a fleet of boats that were owned by Connors Brothers there, and they were called sardine carriers. They would go to where the fishing fleet was, pump the catch aboard these boats, and bring them back to the sardine factory. One of those boats called the Fundy Thistle was captained by a man in our church. I went with him quite often, long enough, often enough, that he would sometimes trust me with the wheel. One day we're coming back from Grand Manan to Black Harbor. It was a beautiful sunny day, flat, calm, just like your living room floor. And you could see over there, actually, about an hour and a half sail or so. And the P-Point Lighthouse was right there on the corner, painted white. You could see it. So the captain, Art Card was his name, Art gave me a course to steer, said, you steer this course, well, I'll be good, I'm gonna go have a nap for half an hour or so. He went back in the captain's little quarters, laid down to have a nap, and I thought, I'm gonna take a shortcut. I don't need to bother with his course he gave me. I'm just, see that lighthouse over there? That's P Point, that's right at the entrance to Black's Harbor. I'm just gonna steer for that. A lot easier than looking at the compass all the time, so I'm steering for that. Very diligently, there we're going right there. After, <laughs> after a few minutes, Art came up, stirred himself and looked around and said, uh, where are you going? That's not a good question if somebody's left you to steer a boat and wants to know where you're going. So I explained my little deal about the white lighthouse. He said, the trouble is the white thing you're following is a white freighter headed to St. John. 
You're never going to get to Black's Harbor by following your own ideas. You've already made the point of that, have you not? Where's the point of your vision when you're transitioning from being overwhelmed to being overwhelmed? What are you focused on? Let us run with endurance, Hebrews said. The race God has set before us, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Not on our own idea of where the lighthouse is, but our eyes on Jesus. Watch your field of vision. The second of these is keep your finger on the oops button. Keep your finger on the oops button. I read a while ago about a, a lady, a dietitian, I think, named Dr. Sherry Pagato, who created a research app that has an oops button on it for participants to push if they ever gave in to an unhealthy food craving. <laughs> I don't want one of those. It, it provided situational feedback on the circumstances, though, right? And we need an imaginary oops button, ladies and gentlemen, if we ever give in to flipping the coin from this overwhelm back to this one. We need an oops button. We're not perfect. We're not. And if the coin flips over because we got a gut punch, push the ups, the oops button. For I hold you by my right hand, I the Lord your God, and I say to you, do not be afraid. I am here to help you. A year ago last May, I had a stroke. Those are awful words when the doctor looks you right in the face and said, sir, you've had a stroke. Impacted the the occipital lobe of my brain and didn't leave me otherwise disadvantaged (laughs) as far as I know. One of the joyous things about that, you can be disadvantaged and not know it. I met some like that this morning even. And so, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. But it was very devastating to me, I have to tell you, I was overwhelmed in a negative way, very devastating. My family tree has people in it with all kinds of circulatory issues, and I wondered, is this the beginning of the end and all the rest of it? And I was reading one of my favorite chapters in the Bible about that time, Isaiah chapter 41. I read many times, but verse 13 jumped out at me out of those circumstances when I was pushing the oops button And that verse that I read a moment ago, for I hold you by your right hand, I the Lord your God, and I say to you, this was it for me, do not be afraid, I am here to help you. So when the thing goes haywire, and you feel like you need to hit the oops button, and things are not perfect anymore, I just need to remind you on the authority of God's own word, he has said, don't be afraid, I'm here to help you. Well, we might have an oops button when it goes haywire, but (laughs) it has a good outcome. And the third one of those is finding the power of family. Finding the power of family. Family of God and human family as well. Many of you would know the story of Job from the Old Testament, which I shall not take the time to spin this morning. But Job was a wealthy landowner. He lost everything that he had. He lost his lands. He lost his livestock. He lost his family. And things were all torn apart. And his life went into a shambles. He cut himself. He threw dust in the air, which is a Middle Eastern sign of sorrow. He sat down in sackcloth and ashes. And the Bible says this, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. 
I had an anonymous letter written about me one time. Two things I want to say about anonymous letters. They're written by cowards, number one. If you don't have the courage to put your name on something you think, then don't be right and expect other people to give it any credence. So that's observation number one. And observation number two is they're never positive. Anybody ever hear tell of an anonymous letter that said, I just want to write an anonymous letter about the most wonderful person in the world. David Way is a tremendous pastor, and we all love him, so we're going to write an anonymous letter. No, you're not. You're going to tell him face to face. Right? Well, an anonymous letter was written. The, general, the Wesleyan Church has a general conference once every four years when people come from Dan to Beersheba, you know, from all of our various districts around the world and get together and vote on a bunch of stuff, including electing officers and all of that. This letter was sent to everybody who was going to be a delegate to the general conference. I was serving on the general board at the time, still am, but at the time. And the letter said, I quote now, that H.C. Wilson is a danger to the Wesleyan Church. This letter is being written to admonish you in the strongest possible terms to vote this man off the general board. Goes without saying, it was a devastating time for me. It was, an over, it was overwhelming, really. I was just overwhelmed. I had no idea why the person wrote the letter they did. I had no idea. I was contacted by some church officials about three months later, said, we figured out who sent that letter. Do you want to know who it was? I said, no, I don't really. If you tell me there's nothing I can do about it, it's already been sent. And if you do tell me, it will affect the rest of my life how I feel about that person. In spite of my best efforts, I'll want to put sugar in their gas tank and I'll be fighting that every time I see them. <laughs> so I don't know who it was. We were pastoring, I was district superintendent at the time in the Delta district and we were living in Mississippi and the district included Alabama and the state of Louisiana. There was a pastor over in Louisiana about a four-hour drive away from where we lived who'd read this letter, knew about this letter, and he got in his car over in Louisiana and drove to Mississippi without me knowing he was coming. I was sitting in my office trying to contemplate what to do next. That knock on the door... And I opened the door and there stood my dear friend who had driven a four-hour drive each way just to come, give me a hug, tell me that he loved me and appreciated what I was doing and I should not be overwhelmed too badly by what was being said about this person who wrote the anonymous letter. So he made that journey across the state line from Louisiana to Mississippi to pass me that word. And I have to tell you, in that moment, I was so pleased for the powerful influence of the family of God. And when the worst thing that could happen ever happens to you, I need to tell you, there'll be people who belong to God's family that'll show up and help you. God himself will be there, but the people will be there. And they will help you. In a minute or two, we're going to sing but just before we do that, you know, Peter, the apostle Peter walked this road. Peter denied Christ. 
His field of vision was on the opinions of people and the threat they might pose to him, being controlled by what other people think. Ever been there? That's a field of vision issue. Then Jesus looked at him after his denial and he pushed his oops button because the Bible said he went out and wept bitterly. But then the family showed up, so to speak. Jesus forgave him and welcomed him back to a place in the family. And he was the preacher at the day of Pentecost. An overwhelmed overcomer. Imagine a coin in your hand. Keep it heads up. Keep your focus and your vision good. Watch out for your oops button. Be expecting the family to intervene. It's just the way it happens when you turn your eyes on Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Moncton Wesleyan, we invite you to visit our website at mw.church. We are here to help you with any questions you might have. See you next time.